Okay, so uh, my name is David Hainick. I'm a lead implementation specialist with the Public Mental Health Partnership. And I'm, I'm not sure uh, who we have on the line and where you're from, what organizations you work with, but just to talk a little bit about um, our organization and our program, um, we work with, uh, we work with the Department of Mental Health, and we put together trainings, provide technical assistance and support, primarily for the full service partnership teams, as well as the homeless outreach teams. And um, we've been, uh, the program has been around now for about three years, and um, I've been with the team for a little over two years. Um, and so uh, I'm going to share a little bit about my background, only so you know where I'm coming from and what perspectives I might have. Um, I'm originally from Cleveland. That's where I went to school. I uh, spent about 11 years in New Orleans, where I did most of my professional training. And, um, and then I was in New York City for about four years. And in New York City, one of the, some of the work that I did that's probably most relevant to the work that you all do is I supervised uh, six ACT teams. And then we had two other uh, mobile treatment teams. And so um, I'm very familiar with the operations, with the work of ACT teams. And for those who aren't familiar with ACT teams, uh, they're very similar to FSP, very similar concept and structure, uh, similar uh, goals and, um, and individuals and challenges that they work with. So it's where a lot of my experience comes from. And then currently, Again, I work for UCLA. I also have a private practice. So um, some of the experiences or um, examples that I might share may be coming from that with, of course, no uh, identifying information shared. So why don't we go ahead and get started today? So it's as you can see, it's problem-solving therapy. We will offer um, four, uh, four units of continuing education if you attend both sessions. And, um, and though those CEUs are available for anyone basically who goes through the BBS for their, uh, for their licensure. So social workers, uh, professional counselors, LMFTs. Um, so that's who we're able to offer continuing education for. Okay, so I um I, this is not a requirement for me. This is typically for medical doctors who have to do a financial disclosure. However, I chose to do that anyways because problem solving therapy is a pretty specific um it's a pretty specific treatment modality and and I say treatment modality. I'll, I'm going to talk more about that later on, but um, it, it's a pretty specific modality and it was developed by um, Arthur Nezu and Christine Nezu and Thomas DiZarilla. Um, so that's going to be in the bibliography, so um, don't worry about the names, but um, they wrote the book on problem solving therapy. It's the treatment manual and I'm going to be referencing this a lot. And I I encourage you to um, like ask your agency if you if they'd be willing to purchase this. And also, I believe we just purchased um, multiple copies of Problem Solving Therapy, um, and we're going to be sending it to our FSP teams. Um, I'm not sure when that's going to happen and what format, but we do that every year. We purchase a whole bunch of books and and send those out to our FSP program. So Problem Solving Therapy is going to be one of those books. But, um, but anyways, 
I promise I don't make any money. I don't work for, well, I make money. I don't make money from Springer Publishing. <laughs> they give me no, and I am not endorsing or anything. Um, so that's why I have this up here, but I do encourage you to check it out. And I'm going to be posting a link and I'm actually going to post it right now because along with the book, um, they put together a, um, it, 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 all of their toolkits that they use alongside the book, and they're available online. Um, it's a PDF document. It's a pretty big uh, PDF document, um, but I'm going to put that in the chat now, and I encourage you to take a look at that. So in the event you're not able to buy the book or you're not able to get a copy, um, I think with this training and then also with this toolkit that's available online, you're going to have most of what you need to be able to provide this, um, this intervention. So, uh, but again, if you get a chance, the book is $60, so it's a little bit expensive. Here's, uh, here's what it looks like, um, but uh, I think it's worth it. It's a, it's a good, great resource. Um, today's learning objectives, we want to identify the problems and populations that problem-solving therapy has been proven effective in. So we'll, we'll touch on some research. We're not going to spend a ton, a ton of time there. Um, we're going to examine treatment strategies that incorporate problem-solving techniques and tools. Um, I'm going to focus a bit on cognitive behavioral therapy just because that's primarily where my training is. And also, um, the problem-solving therapy really is uh, under that umbrella of, of CBT. Um, we're going to explain individuals' problem-solving orientation as well as abilities and attitudes around problem-solving, and then we're going to look at and be able to apply for problem-solving toolkits. So that's over the next, over today and then next Wednesday when we wrap up the, the training. So let's start at, at the beginning here. Uh, so what is problem-solving therapy? So it is an evidence-based approach, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and we'll talk about a little bit of the research that supports its use, um, but it's most definitely grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy. And if you're not super familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, that's absolutely okay. We're gonna, we're gonna touch on some of the basics and, and you don't need to be um, a trained CBT therapist to be able to use problem-solving therapy, which kind of brings me to my next point about problem-solving therapy, is that it's the, the word therapy, yes, it could definitely be a therapeutic approach and it could be used in the context of providing um, clinical treatment. However, it could also be used by individuals who are not necessarily trained to be therapists. Um, it could be used by peers, case managers, it could be used by nurses and doctors. Um, and some of the research actually shows that it's really helpful with uh, in using uh, by a variety of professionals. You know, for example, doctors um, can be trained in problem solving therapy, or, or nurses, I should say, um, doctors and nurses to help uh, help address some of the barriers that people may encounter if they're managing a chronic health condition. Um, if somebody is trying to uh, maybe make some lifestyle changes to uh, to prevent diabetes or prevent it from escalating, problem solving therapy is a really great approach to use with the individual that's. Uh, that that medical professional might be working with. Um, so yeah, it, it's not a complicated treatment modality. It's rather simple. It really involves the use of a lot of psychoeducation and those toolkits that, um, 
uh, that PDF that I had shared in the chat box. Um, that's going to be really, really helpful. And even if you decide, like, you know, as you go through that, like some of the worksheets are like they're they're starting to get a little bit outdated, um, but the concept is actually really great. And they are things that you can easily um, sort of uh, readapt for your own style, for the, own, for you, the work that you do. So, um, and then I have a, a just a little uh, uh, quote from the research here. It's geared in hands one's ability to cope effectively with both minor and major stressors in order uh, to attenuate the extant mental health and physical health problems. Um, so that is the intent of this treatment modality. And um, I don't know why I put that picture here. I developed this training about a year ago and I might've had more reasons for that, but right now I can't think of what that picture has anything to do with aside from the fact that that Lego character needs some major problem solving skills right now because he's gonna get crushed. Okay, and so here is the book that I was talking about and I tried to show before. Um, the uh, the handouts are available again in that uh, in the link. The book can also be purchased there. And if you're an FSP team, you should be getting this book uh, soon. Okay, so here's some of the boring stuff. Well, hopefully this training isn't boring, but this will probably be the more boring things. Um, this is the evidence. So a meta-analysis, so that's like a review of tons of different research was conducted and they found that problem-solving therapy is more effective than no treatment. So that's certainly a good thing. Um, it's more effective than the placebo and treatment as usual. So they found that PST, problem-solving therapy, it's effective as other bona fide treatments. So this meta-analysis, it included 39 studies and it covered a lot of people. So almost three 3,000 people. And um, when I was putting this training together, of course, I've heard the word bona fide before. Um, but sometimes when I'm doing trains, I get a little curious. I'm like, what does that actually mean? Um, bona fide in Latin means in good faith. So uh, the bona fide treatments that uh, were that they were using in this study to kind of compare those treatment modalities included family behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral education, the Milan approach, interactional therapy, emotive behavior therapy, REBT, um, medication, and behavioral parent management training. So I'm, I'm familiar with a few of those models. Um, and then one more thing, the medication that they compared this to, uh, they, they had three different ones. So it was Paxil, uh, Paxil Prozac, and Amitriptyline. So those are the ones that's, um, that, they were, that were included in here. So, uh, so there is that evidence. And, and I think I had wrote, uh, written a comment here. Um, they say it's as good as some of those treatments. You know, I think we need more research to see um, like what some of the strong points are. Like, is it better than a, than a particular um, modality or not? So probably more research is always helpful, but so far so good. So here's a second meta-analysis. And uh, they determined that uh, PST is an effective intervention for reducing depressive symptomatology. And what I found really interesting about this is, I guess it's that it, it makes sense. You know, I think if you think about people who experience depression or if you've ever uh, uh, 
have experienced depression yourself. Um, you know, sometimes it feels as if your problem solving abilities maybe aren't as strong, maybe you feel unmotivated. Um, but then if you're able to solve a problem, even if it's something little, um, and you're able to do that independently or maybe with some support, but you're able to work through something that can really boost confidence um, and give you the motivation to do something a little bit bigger next time. And so, and that boost in confidence can really counteract some of those depressive symptoms. And the other angle that, that uh, point in research really demonstrates. Um, I'm not sure uh, for those, I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with the idea of locus of control. Um, it's a, it's a, a psychology concept about how do we view, uh, how much control do we have in our lives? Do things happen to us or do we make decisions in life that's, um, that are the cause for where we are? So as an example, um, you know, let's say that I am, uh, I am. I, I have a partner, but let's say I'm dating. Um, I don't have a partner. I'm single, and I'm just like, oh, I'm never gonna find the right person for me. Um, I don't know. I'm not gonna do any apps. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna wait until you know the right guy walks into my life. You know. So there, my locus of control is very external, meaning. I think things are going to happen to me. And in that case where I'm, you know, trying to date but not doing anything about it, um, it may happen and that does work for people. Maybe I'll have a romantic story about meeting somebody in the grocery store um, and then we'll fall in love and get married. But but it's not that likely. I feel like things like like there's almost like this idea that uh, there's a there's fate. Um, and that's an external locus of control. Now, an internal locus of control, maybe I'll, I'll use a different example for myself. Let's say that, um, you know, I want to excel in my work and I want to get that next promotion. You know, I could say, well, I'll just do what I can. And hopefully, you know, my boss will, you know, think I'm awesome and maybe promote me. Or I could have that internal locus of control and I could say, you know what, I'm going to get a promotion. So I'm going to work extra hard. I'm going to, um, I'm going to take on projects that aren't really under my uh, purview, but it'll kind of be seen as extra, you know, because I, I want to be able to develop um, and, you know, professionally uh, grow. So again, I'm taking the control. And I'm owning that, and uh, and I'm not really relying on those external factors to make things happen for me. So that's more of an internal locus of control. And it's there has been some research to show that people who have that internal locus of control tend to not have as many depressive symptoms. And that really reminds me of this problem-solving therapy because they're taking ownership over what's happening and actually taking action, creating a plan, looking at what supports are out there, as opposed to just waiting to see what happens to them. So it's a bit about perspective, um, and a bit about autonomy and, and taking action. And it's not that there's anything wrong with believing in fate or, or wanting things to happen um, and, and kind of relying on like whatever outside forces to do that, but they're just different perceptions there. And PST aligns a little bit more with that internal locus of control. Um, so that might've been quite a long tangent, but hopefully that is helpful. Um, whoops, I didn't mean to go.
there we go. Okay. Um, in some studies, PST was statistically significant, small to medium effect, more effective. Other studies found that it was effective, but not more so than other treatments. So this is still that meta, the second meta-analysis that we were talking about before I went on my long tangent. Okay. And then let's look at evidence supports PST. This is the third and last bit of evidence. So the this is the most recent meta-analysis reviewed. Um, it was in 2013. They found that when comparing seven different psychotherapeutic approaches, um, so those include supportive counseling, psychodynamic therapy, social skills training, problem-solving therapy, of course, cognitive behavioral therapy, behavior activation, and interpersonal therapy. Not one of these treatments was significantly better than the others in treating depression. So this is specifically identified for depression, um, and it found problem-solving is kind of right alongside with, with other um, major uh, uh, modalities for treatment. Okay, so the summary here of the evidence is that, you know what, it's another tool. It may not be something that you use exclusively. I tend to use in my private practice, I tend to use bits and pieces from it because it fits in well with CBT. Sometimes it's not appropriate. Sometimes there's tons of this that is really, really appropriate for somebody that I'm working with. Um, and I imagine that that would also apply to the individuals that we work with in FSP or homeless outreach or even in schools. I know we have some uh, people who work with, with young people here. So, um, and problem solving therapy, it supports autonomy, it facilitates an internal locus of control, and it can improve self-esteem because that individual is recognizing that they can do it. They're able to, um, to solve something that may have felt uh, really challenging to them before. Okay, so any questions um, about the evidence, uh, feel free to type those into the chat. Um, I do check it throughout the training, so I have it open on another window. I'm able to see what comes through. So uh, yeah, any questions and com or comments, you're always welcome to type those in. And you're also welcome to unmute yourself as well. Like we have a small group today, so I'm not worried about, um, you know, getting distracted or, you know, throwing off my rails here, so. Okay, so we are going to do a quick overview of CBT um, and we'll connect it a bit to problem solving therapy. So remember problem solving therapy, it relies heavily on concepts from CBT. And it's helpful to be aware of these core concepts as we go through the training. So, uh, you know, again, I, I identify as a CBT therapist, it's not, everything I do, but that's, it's certainly the core. And CBT really is about this relationship between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. The idea is that when we experience an event, uh, we have thoughts around that. We, we sort of perceive that event in a certain way, and that, uh, that facilitates how we feel in that moment. Um, sometimes those thoughts aren't quite accurate. Um, we may be misinterpreting something, um, therefore we'll be feeling differently about an event. So we may, you know, feel sad or depressed or anxious, and that's going to motivate our behaviors in turn. Um, and that's CBT in a very small nutshell. We'll, we'll go into more detail. But like one of the things that I, um, the way I, uh, when I talk with people that I work with about CBT and about this 
uh, connectedness of these three ideas. I often talk about uh, going back to that locus of control idea of like, when you look at these three things, which of these do we have the most control over? You know, our feelings we have, you know, I tend to think we have a very little control over our emotions. Now we could do things to try to shift our emotions after the fact. Um, we could do some e emotion regulation work, but when the emotion comes up, like it comes up and we could try to fight it. It usually doesn't work very well. Um, and if we had full control over our feelings, I would be out of a job and that would be okay. I'll find something else to do. Um, and then our thoughts, have you ever tried not thinking about something? Like it just doesn't really work. So it, it's not to say we have no control over our thoughts because I feel we, we could always add to. So I may, I may have a really difficult time not thinking about a stressful event coming up. Um, and if I try to not think about it, it's gonna make me even more anxious. However, I could add an additional thought. I could start thinking about some of my favorite music. I could start thinking about being creative. Um, I could think about other things to do to help keep my mind occupied, not necessarily avoid it or, or distract, but just an additional thought to have there, recognizing that I'm, I'm having these thoughts about whatever event, I also have these other thoughts and I'm going to put those in there. It'll kind of dilute um, uh, it, like a, a really great example is, uh, it, you know, if you if I have a here's my, you know, my coffee, let's pretend this is water. If I put a tablespoon of salt in here, it's going to taste really bad. Um, if I take that same tablespoon of salt and add it to a, you know, a bathtub filled with water, you're probably not going to taste it that much. It's the, the context. We're putting more there. We're, we're diluting um, that stressful event. And then finally, the behaviors are the things that, it, easier said than done, but it's the things that we, for the most part, have almost total control over. I may not feel like exercising today, but I did. I went through it kind of mindlessly but I did it. I was able to do that despite the fact that my thoughts and feelings were saying, go back to bed, you feel tired, you feel unmotivated. Um, don't think about it, just do it. And so, um, so behaviors, again, easier said than done. I feel that those are the things that we're able to change the most. Okay, so now here is the, uh, the, the, the scale of, of what we were just talking about. So an event happens, we create something called an automatic thought. It's a way about thinking of that. It's how we think about that event. Sometimes it happens without our, without us really thinking too much about it. It just pops in our head. Um, but oftentimes those random thoughts that pop in our head, we, we give them Sometimes we just view them as absolute truth when really if we take a step back, like, oh, that automatic thought that came up isn't quite accurate. Um, and then, but then sometimes we have an emotional reaction on that automatic thought and then we respond behaviorally. So let's take this, uh, give it, uh, put in an example. Um, so the event is perceived. So some, well, all of you are attending this training today. Um, maybe some of you, when you registered or you started doing the training today, you had a couple automatic thoughts. Um, these are some that I have all the time. So, you know, I'm not blaming anyone, but trainings can be really boring and I don't have the time. Like, I know you are all super busy. You somehow were able to make time for this, but still these automatic thoughts are coming up. 
um, or potentially, um, I don't wanna assume that. Um, and so then we, we have some emotional responses to those automatic thoughts. Um, you may be irritated that you have to sit through a boring training, um, or you may feel even a little bit anxious because you do have so much else to do. Um, and here you are listening to me talk and you know that may cause you some anxiety. And so uh, we may have a behavioral response to that. Um, you know, one of mine that I, you know, is really hard for me to break, but if I'm, if I'm bored, I'm going to go to my phone. Um, I'm going to start doing something mindless on my phone. Sometimes that actually helps, you know, like I, if I'm playing like Candy Crush or something, <laughs> I know that's old school, but um, I, like I, I could listen and that just kind of keeps me distracted, but not always, you know, I, I, I think practicing from a mindful place of mindfulness, it's best if I try to focus my concentration on what's going on and, and fight that desire to play on my phone. Um, and same with feeling anxious or, you know, like playing on your phone during a training can be, again, a really common thing. It's a way to sort of distract. So that's CBT uh, played out. Does, does that make sense? And does anyone have questions about that example or about the overall framework of CBT without going into too much uh, detail? I don't wanna derail us from problem solving therapy. Cool. Let's go to the, my next slide here. Okay, so some of the things that I've been talking about, uh, just to give you a little definition around that. Um, an automatic thought, as I said, it's something that quickly comes up um, as a result of a situation. Um, they often have a little bit of an inaccuracy. If not, sometimes they're completely inaccurate um, and they're oftentimes maladaptive, uh, meaning that they're just not helpful. Um, and then there's also something called a negative core belief. We're going to go into this a bit. I do this a lot in my work. Um, and I think this also can apply to a lot of individual FSP um, services. But many of us, and probably all of us, to some degree, have these negative core beliefs about ourselves. Um, they're not always at the forefront of our mind, and sometimes they are, but it's this broad, rigid belief about oneself that supports any sort of negative automatic thoughts. So uh, some really common, and I, I'm going to use the word generic, uh, negative core beliefs can be like, oh, you know, I'm worthless, I'm not lovable, I... Uh, I, I, I'm not good enough, uh, though you've probably heard some of those things before. And those are some really common and also really generic, but still really common negative core beliefs. And it's not always easy to get to those things. Um, it, sometimes it's buried. So if you're working with somebody um, you may not, they may not be able to say, oh yeah, this is my negative core belief. They may say, I don't, you know, I feel pretty good about myself. Um, it, but there still might be something there. It takes a little bit of work, a little bit of processing to get to it. And now another important term um, is something called cognitive distortions. These are things that all of us do all the time. Uh, maybe not all the time, but lots of the times. Um, I certainly do. Um, and we'll go through a couple examples. So like there's all or nothing, ooh, that's a typo there. It should say all or nothing thinking. Um, so that's where there's no gray area. Um, it's like this training is awesome or this training is awful. Well, maybe it's like, okay, you know, there the movie was cute, the research was really boring and the handout was helpful. All right, so that's somewhere in the middle. It's not this super amazing, super awful. 
Um, another very common one is that negative filter. Um, like, and I, I sometimes connect this to that bias, uh, confirmation bias, um, where we only find evidence to support one's point of view. And, you know, I, I think about this, uh, I, <laughs> I won't share a specific example, but I don't know if you've ever done any searching in Google and, you know, maybe you, there's like this random health issue that you're having and, you think you know what it is. And so you're just going to find the evidence to support that. And so you search up like good old WebMD, you're like, no, that's not it, they're wrong. And then, oh, but I found this article on Reddit that says this health issue is this. See, I'm right, I knew it. That's that bias, com that confirmation bias is like, we're only looking for evidence that that supports what we, what we think we already know. Um, and, uh, and catastrophizing, um, making a bad situation seem way worse than it really is. Um, you know, maybe I had a bad workout today. And so then I'm like, oh my God, this day just sucks. Like, well, that's kind of being a little dramatic. It's just a bad workout and the rest of the day, hopefully it's going to be good. So, and my workout was actually okay. It wasn't bad. Not that it matters. Okay. So now we have some of these terms. Let's add a bit to this example here. And then we're going to apply it to an example that might be a little bit more consistent with the work that you all do. Um, so we have an event is perceived. Um, so it's that idea that I'm attending a training. And that's a valid observation. So, all right, so we're good. And then we create this automatic thought. Um, remember, those are the things that just pop up without a whole lot of thoughts. And sometimes we give it a lot of more credit than it should. Um, so like trainings are boring or I don't have time. So here we're using some cognitive distortions. The idea that trainings are boring, that's an overgeneralization. Lots of trainings are boring, but there are a few one, there are a few trainings that, that aren't boring, that are exciting. Um, or that could be black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking in that um, parts of this training are boring, parts of it were not boring. Um, and same with the idea of I don't have time. Well, you, you do have time because you made it and you're here. So, um, so maybe that's a little bit of catastrophizing. Okay, so now let's move into the next section where we have an emotional response is experienced. So we have that feeling of irritation or anxious because we're thinking trainings are boring and we don't have time. So here we have our emotions, but the emotions are based on our cognitive distortions and our negative core beliefs if present, as opposed to the actual present situation. Um, and then that behavioral response of, I'm gonna play on my phone instead. So that could be that maladaptive behavior of you know, playing on my phone and now I'm even less focused. And because I'm less focused, I find the training even more boring because I wasn't paying attention to the past 15 minutes. And I don't know what he's talking about. So um, that's kind of those CBT concepts plugged in. And let's take an example. And as I go through this, feel free to put any questions that might come up for you um, in the chat box, okay? All right, so we're gonna talk about Marion. Marion was at the clinic to meet with her psychiatrist. Marion shared with the psychiatrist that she has still been experiencing some symptoms that have been plaguing her. The psychiatrist talked with Marion about her treatment options and they agreed to make a slight increase to her antidepressant medication. When Marion got home, she started to cry. 
Her boyfriend hugged her and asked what was wrong. Marion stated that she thinks that her psychiatrist thinks she's crazy. Her medication was increased. Increased. Marion went on to say that she is never going to be for medications and she should just stop thinking that she can have a successful future or start a family. Um, so as I read, whoops, as I read that, um, you might've been able to hear some of those automatic thoughts and cognitive distortions that popped up. So let's take, uh, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> that thought train went downhill real fast. Yes, <laughs> which definitely happens in reality, but more so when you're fitting it into two slides. <laughs> Thank you for that. That makes me laugh. Um, so an event is perceived. So Marion is thinking, I've been prescribed an increase in medication. So, so that's the event. So like there might be some people who could view that event, like maybe let's say that that happened to me. I'm not Marion, obviously. I'm a very different person. I have different background, different experiences. And let's say that happened to me and be like, oh, good. I might feel optimistic of like, oh, thank God, my doctor up increased my medication. I really hope this is going to help. And so like that perception would be very different than Marion, who's automatically created this automatic thought of, oh, gosh, he, he or she must think I'm crazy. Um, and there, she's using a cognitive distortion there. And most likely that distortion could be catastrophizing of making it worse than what it really is or uh, personalizing it where, you know, the psychiatrist might be thinking, you know what, I want to address this depression. We want to get this down so you can be a little bit more functional. And Marion's thinking, oh, you think I'm going crazy. I know it. Um, she's making it, I mean, it is about her, but not about her as a person. It's about that symptom that they're trying to treat. So there could be a few other cognitive distortions in there as well, but we won't go through everyone. So Marion uh, experienced an emotional reaction. She's like, she, perhaps she's angry, um, maybe angry at the psychiatrist. They, they can't get this down yet. Um, she might be really disappointed. Like maybe she's feeling that she just, she failed. Maybe she feels like she's not good enough because she's not able to get through this depression without more medication. So here the emotion, it's based on the cognitive distortion and that negative core belief. And so behavior uh, follows those emotions. So perhaps she's going to stop planning for the future. I, I know that's a little dramatic and hopefully that's not the case, but maybe she's like, you know what? I'm not going to be able to go to school. I'm not going to be able to finish, finish my, my high school. I'm not going to be able to get into college. I'm not be able to finish college, whatever. Um, or she might just yell at her boyfriend um, and take that frustration out at him. Um, and those behaviors just aren't really that helpful in getting her through this situation. Um, does sense? And does anyone have any questions about that? We're going to continue talking about it, but I just want to make sure that we're um, addressing anything that comes up for you. Um, what are some, so I feel like I might've already answered this a bit, um, but what do you think are some possible automatic thoughts that Marion may have had about that situation? So when her doctor said, we're going to increase your medication, what are some automatic thoughts that you think she might've experienced, or maybe I wrote them down and we actually reviewed it, but and anything else, we could be creative. We could make stuff up here. It's just an example. Um, 
I'm gonna, I'll probably, I think I have a slide on this, um, but a, uh, I'll share it near the end, but there's a really great uh, CBT book that just goes through a whole bunch of tools. Um, it's on my bookshelf, so I, I believe there's a slide on it, but I'll show it to you later. Um, but really excellent. It goes through all these uh, different cognitive distortions and worksheets that people can complete. So, okay. So let's let's continue on with Marion and let's look at a different perspective that she may have. Marion came back from her psychiatrist and was greeted by her boyfriend. How was your appointment, Marion? Scott asked. Marion replied, it was okay. We decided that we'll try and increase in my antidepressant. I really appreciate that the doctor involved me in this decision. However, I'm somewhat disappointed that it had to be increased. Either way, having a better handle on my mental health will help me to finish college. So here it's a, a much more sort of realistic, uh, rational response. She's feeling disappointed and that's okay. She's acknowledging it. She's not allowing that disappointment to necessarily shape her perceptions of the event. Um, she is trying to be a little bit more realistic, trying to be a little bit more positive. Um, and I shouldn't say trying to be more positive because that it gives the impression that, yeah, we just have to look at things different. And even if it is bad, we just turn it into a positive. Like, no, it's, it's not that way. Like there's definitely bad things in life that we want to acknowledge that suck, you know, <laughs> and that's okay. But acknowledging the emotion that's there and not basing our, our thoughts and behaviors on a cognitive distortion that may sneak in and, and, and shade our perspective. And um, Nancy, thank you so much for putting that in the chat. So I just saw it now, but yeah, a negative filter. I, I, I think so many people that I imagine all of us work with often have that negative filter where we just, we, we only see the bad stuff and we, anything good, we just kind of ignore it. It's, you know, the idea if like 10 people tell you, you look nice today. And then one person says like, your shirt's ugly. Um, we're going to focus on that person who said your shirt's ugly and, and feel bad about it, as opposed to feel really good about the other people who said that we look nice today. So, um, not that that applies to everybody, but that's a good example. Okay, so any other thoughts or questions about CBT? We are now going to move into problem-solving therapy and, um, and yeah. Nope, not seeing any, any questions or comments. So let's talk about some key concepts of problem-solving therapy. So these are the key objectives. Um, it's to enhance problem orientation and positive problem orientation. We're gonna talk about what a problem orientation is in a few minutes. It's to decrease the negative problem orientation. Yeah, not very exciting uh, treatment objectives there. Uh, foster planful problem solving. So planful problem solving is kind of the, the key. That's the gold standard of what we're going to be looking for in developing with people that we work with using problem solving therapy is we want to, uh, we, we want to utilize all of the skills, the, uh, the resources and the toolkit to really foster a planful problem solving process. And we'll talk about what that looks like um, a little bit today, definitely more so next Wednesday. Um, we want to minimize avoidant problem solving, and we also want to minimize impulsive, careless problem solving. So uh, again, those are things that we are going to talk about um, over the next hour. 
Okay, and just some clinical considerations. Um, uh, for me, and I, I think a lot of people, the relationship is so, so important. Um, and if you don't have a good relationship, I think it's really difficult to apply problem-solving therapy. I think it's difficult to apply really any therapeutic approach. If the client doesn't trust you in the relationship that you have, it's going to be difficult to do the work. So um, if you are working with somebody and you are wanting to jump in with using some of the tool, uh, tools and the toolkits, um, it's okay if you if you don't, if you hold back and focus on the relationship first and then start to use some of those tools. Um, the uh, clinician uh, always recommend that they demonstrate person-centered skills, unconditional positive regard, empathy and genuineness. So good old Carl Rogers and uh, some of his core concepts of person-centered therapy apply to so many different things, whether you're case management, whether you are, uh, you know, a, a peer specialist, if you're a psychiatrist, like those things are so, so important to have regardless of your profession and, or uh, yeah, regardless of your profession. Uh, we want to be able to demonstrate that, that there's hope that the person we're working with, they can absolutely succeed in learning and applying problem solving skills. Um, and I know many of you work with some uh, really, really challenging individuals who, whose functioning might be really stifled because of a, a serious mental illness. Um, it can be easy to think like, oh my gosh, I don't know how they're ever going to be able to get from point A to point B. But we wanna be able to show hope that like no matter what, no matter what serious mental health condition or substance use um, or anything else they're struggling with, um, there absolutely is hope that they are able to succeed, that they could learn some of these skills. And we want to be creative. We want to allow the individual to practice problem-solving therapy in session, um, emphasize creativity, how important, it's just so important. And while you hit, there's this treatment manual that'll guide you through how to uh, provide this intervention. That doesn't mean that you don't bring your own personality and your own style uh, into the work you do with clients. Uh, your creativity is very important and your personal style and authenticity is also very important in applying PST. Okay. So let's talk about some of these uh, key concepts that I had referenced. I was talking about the problem orientation and then problem solving style. So we're gonna first focus on a problem, the, the problem orientation. So this is really our worldview of problems in life. So the adoption of an adaptive worldview or orientation towards uh, towards problems in living. Um, so this includes optimism, positive self-efficacy, acceptance that problems are common occurrences in life. Um, we're gonna go into the different problem orientations in a few minutes. And then the problem solving style. So we have how people view problems, and then we're gonna go into how people uh, try to solve problems. Um, there's, uh, there's an avoidance style, there's also an impulsive carelessness style, um, but the definition here, I'll, I'll read this, it's the effective implementation of specific problem-solving behaviors. And as you know from your work and from your own experiences, oftentimes that involves uh, regulating our emotions and managing those emotions and also being planful in how we solve problems. 
Okay, so let's look at our problem orientation. So I'll start with a quote here from Captain Jack Sparrow. Uh, and I, this is kind of a generic uh, citing because I, I, I think I've seen this movie. I don't remember. I don't remember movies very well. Um, but anyways, Johnny Depp as Captain Sparrow says, the problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude about the problem. Um, and I think that's a really good way to conceptualize this problem orientation. It's how we view it. Um, consistent with CBT, people view problems differently based on perceptions, experiences, and our own knowledge, depending on what the problem may be. Um, but in general, people can have positive or negative problem orientation. Um, and let's go into what those look like. So a negative problem orientation, and I'm not here to say that Frederick Douglass has a uh, negative problem orientation. I'm gonna connect his quote. I just wanna specify that really quick. Um, but a negative problem orientation, it perceives problems as threats to oneself or to others. So it's a little bit of that personalization. Um, there's sometimes people with a negative problem orientation think that problems just can't be solved. Um, they may lack the confidence that they're even able to solve the problem. So maybe they view a problem as solvable, but they don't have the skills to be able to work through it. Um, and then they may have a difficult time accepting that negative emotions are part of the process. And that's where I wanted to pull in Frederick Douglass's quote, excuse me, I'll tongue tied. Frederick Douglass's quote, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. And I think that's that mindful acceptance that, yeah, things sometimes suck in life, problems are not always easy, and sometimes we may feel bad about a problem. Sometimes we're gonna feel frustrated. Maybe a bit, you know, irritated or angry, and that that's okay. We, we don't, uh, we wanna acknowledge that those feelings come up for us, and they should, because problems are not always easy, um, and we, most likely should have these uh, sort of unpleasant emotions that come with it. The thing is we wanna make sure that we acknowledge the emotion is there and we accept it. And we don't view that, as a, that emotion as a reason to not try to solve the problem. We wanna view it as yes, I'm feeling this way and this is what I'm going to do to try to rectify the situation as opposed to yes, I'm feeling this way Therefore, I'm not able to move forward. I don't have the motivation. So that's where I feel that quote uh, comes in handy. And I really like that. So here are some examples. Um, and I've connected these to our ideas about CBT. So I wanna make sure that makes a little bit more sense. So someone may have that negative problem orientation of I just can't do this. Um, so the cognitive distortion here may be that they're jumping to conclusions. They are making the assumption that whatever problem they've come up to, they're jumping to the conclusion that they are not going to be able to solve it, to rectify it, to resolve it. Um, so if we take away that cognitive distortion, and let's take a more accurate view. And we could say, you know what, this is a challenge, but you might actually be able to do this. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking about somebody that I'm working with now who started a really difficult program in school and started the first couple weeks of that program. His thoughts were, there's no way I could do this. I'm going to fail. Um, I don't know if I should just drop out now 
or, you know, just persevere, but like, I'm definitely going to fail. Well, sure enough, he did not fail. And so we were able to look at the end of that semester and say, remember when you were thinking this? Yeah, I remember that. Okay. It, not to shame or make him feel guilty, um, but just to demonstrate that in that example, um, he was, he almost was making be behavioral decisions based on this negative thought and jumping to conclusions. Um, another negative thought is I've never experienced anything like this before. So who knows what have, what might have happened, but it's an overgeneralization. It's it maybe more accurate view may be to say, well, this is a new experience, but there are aspects that might be familiar to you. Maybe you've never uh, come across this problem before of like maybe someone starting new medications and they're experiencing, uh, they're experiencing symptoms and they don't know what to do about the or side effects of the medication. Um, they may say, I've never don't know what to do. There's no way I could keep taking these medications. Well, that's an overgeneralization. Instead, we could say, this is a new experience but you've dealt with new experiences before. Um, and what do you usually do when you have a new experience? Maybe you observe, maybe you use patience to see what happens before you make your, take your next step. Um, everything about the situation is just awful. Um, again, all or nothing thinking. Overall, the situation may be bad, but there might be some good things. I, you know, I, I, I don't wanna minimize all of the lives lost during COVID and the families that have been in isolation um, and the, you know, destroyed plans for exciting events. And like, gosh, there's so many bad things that happen with COVID um, that continue to happen because of course we are not out of it yet. But I think there's also some good things that have, that have come about from COVID. Um, now those are gonna vary depending on who you ask. Um, but gosh, I used to say that I would never be able to work from home. I just didn't think I had this, like, I have a very quiet place, you know, my partner's at the, his office. And so I'm here by myself and, but sometimes I get really distracted. Um, sometimes it's hard for me to focus, but you know what, I've been able to do it. It's been working. Okay. Like I've learned new skills out of this. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, sometimes there are some good things that can come out of bad things. Okay, so I'm not going to go through the next examples um, just for sake of time. Okay, so here we have a quote. I'm not sure if anyone is a Saweetie fan. Um, I did not like her very first song, and then I just kept listening to it, and now I actually really like her. So I found a quote from her. Um, I know where I want to end up. I'm ready to go and I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to build and I'm ready to establish my longevity. What a wonderful quote. That is a positive problem orientation. She is viewing it with, uh, uh, she's, she's viewing life and problems that come up with optimism and confidence. So with the positive problem orientation, problems are opportunities for learning something new. Um, the challenges they represent can contribute to personal growth. So <laughs> that's definitely a shift in our thinking. Um, and it, it, sometimes it can be hard to share that with people we work with as we don't want to sound like we're coming off as cliche or naive. Um, but it is true, like without problems, it, like I, it, I had a quote in here before, and I think I removed it. Um, I think it was Thomas Edison. Um, and it, the quote is, uh, 
I didn't make mistakes. Instead, I learned 10,000 ways of how to not do something. <laughs> I know I butchered that quote, um, but it's something like that. And that's exactly right. I've learned many things. Uh, like I always, you know, use myself as an example of like, yeah, I make so so many mistakes. That's how I learn, and <laughs> it's definitely um, part of my professional development. Um, anyways, the the challenges that problems present can represent growth. People with a positive problem orientation, they believe that problems can be solved. Um, not in an irrational, unrealistic, or even delusional way, um, but a rational way. Um, effective problem solving requires resources such as time and energy. So that's that acknowledgement that, yes, I'm going to actually have to work to solve this problem. Um, and it may feel bad at times, but that is okay. That is part of the process. And so that last bullet but there is acceptance that negative emotions are part of the problem solving process. Those negative emotions don't mean that you're failing at problem solving. They are simply part of the process. Um, and we could learn from those emotions, but we don't want to necessarily follow what those emotions are telling us to do. Because they may be telling you to like, stop, stop the whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. It's easier to just quit or don't be motivated. Um, we don't want to follow those messages. We may want to follow the message of, you know, I'm feeling sadness about a problem because this problem, the idea of it is something that's important to me. Um, you know, if I'm stressed about something at work and, or I have a new project and it feels, um, unsolvable, um, if I were to, uh, view that from a more positive perspective, it, it would be acknowledging like, yeah, this is going to be really tough. I'm going to be frustrated. But at the end of this, um, I'll have grown. And even through all of the mistakes that I'm going to make, I'm going to learn from each one of those. Okay. Um, so those are the two orientations, negative and positive. <laughs> Pretty easy. Um, any questions about the negative problem orientation or the positive? Sounds like the pep talk I always have to give myself to get paper right. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, you are not kidding. I go through the same thing. There are certain things that I really struggle to do paperwork wise. And um, yeah, I have to say that this, it's not going to feel good doing it, but you know what? It's part of the work. I'm going to learn from it and I'll practice, practice patience because my patients could definitely use more practice. So I'll consider that as something I'm working on when I'm doing whatever paperwork or, or, or other tasks that I don't want to do. Um, thank you, Rachel, for sharing that. Um, so now we're going to move into problem solving styles. And the research conducted by the authors of uh, problem solving therapy, um, they conclude that there are three different types of problem solving styles. So there's the, the ideal, which is planful problem solving. There's the less than ideal of avoidant problem solving, and then the impulsive careless problem solving. So we're gonna go through each one of these styles, but we're gonna use a, uh, a vignette to, to kind of demonstrate those. Um, I actually had changed the vignette. It used to be one very focused around COVID and I removed it because I'm like, you know what, we need to start moving past COVID. And then LA County put in the mask mandate. I'm like, oh, that actually would have been really appropriate. <laughs> 
but that's okay. I, I went without the, the COVID example. Um, so I'll read through this. Uh, I know everyone can read, but I know some of you may not be looking at the screen or be in the car. So I'm gonna read the vignette and then we'll, we'll talk about different problem orientations. Okay, so here we have Eddie. Um, he has been on unemployment since he lost his serving job three months ago. Uh, he is an aspiring musician and the time on unemployment has been really helpful for him because he's been able to focus on creating music. Um, however, his unemployment is running out and he's scared that he won't be able to afford his rent at his sober living. Okay, so when Eddie thinks about his next move, he feels really anxious. Um, I, I imagine there's lots of different thoughts of like, you know, what am I gonna do? Where am I gonna work? What happens to my music career? Um, he notices that he, his desire to use substances creeps into his mind because of the anxiety, so it's a little bit triggering. Um, so for this reason, he distracts himself by listening to music, uh, to listen to music by artists that he looks up to. Um, so, I know we didn't go through the definitions, but they're relatively self-explanatory. What do you think Eddie is doing in this moment? So he's B, yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, so he's he's avoiding, and honestly, I don't wanna say that what he's doing is necessarily bad. Um, this is just for the vignette. He may be, he may continue solving problems after this, but he's also recognizing that there's, um, you know, this idea of using substances is creeping up and that might be scary for him. Um, and the anxiety is, is a lot. So by listening to music, um, that actually could be a really positive coping mechanism. But let's say that he's listening to music to avoid actually solving the problem. That's where it's gonna be uh, a little bit challenging, but yes, exactly. He, this is a more of an avoidant, um, problem-solving style. Now, let's look at it from a different perspective. Um, when Eddie thinks about his next move, he feels very anxious, he doesn't want to relapse, and is frustrated with how difficult it is to make it. Uh, he takes his notebook, which is filled with, with his writing, he throws it in the trash and sets it on fire. It's a little dramatic. <laughs> I think I meant to take out the set on fire piece, but then I'm like, no, we'll just keep it in. Um, so uh, yeah, thank you, Daniel. Uh, so this is clearly a very impulsive and, uh, and a careless problem solving style. Um, and, uh, you know, like the, the emotions that he was experiencing, he was listening to them a little bit too much. And he just took his work, trashed it. And, um, you know, who knows where he's going to go from there. Okay. So here's the, the final example. And as Eddie feels his anxiety rise and his cravings to use also increase, he decides that he might talk to his FSP um, case manager. So of course, this is, uh, this is a good solution. It doesn't have to be an FSP case manager. It could be a close friend. It could be a therapist, it could be his case manager, maybe he has a substance use case manager he works with or a, a sponsor with a recovery group or something like that that he talks to to try to process some of these emotions that he's experiencing. Okay, and so before we get into this, um, I just, I, I put in a few random quotes, but uh, by Cesar Chavez, you were never strong enough uh, you are never strong enough that you don't need help. And I really wanted to just emphasize that it's okay. Part of a planful problem-solving style is to reach out for help 
when you think you may need help. And in Eddie's example, he reached out um, because he, he doesn't feel perhaps in that moment that he has the ability, the talents, and the resources to be able to solve this issue. And, um, and Cesar Chavez is saying, that's okay. You will be able to do this. Asking for help is not a problem. So here is the very quick outline of what a planful problem solving style looks like. Now we're gonna go more in depth and we're gonna start connecting it to different tools that are in the handouts that um, are in the link that I shared in the chat. Um, but first it's defining the problem and determine a realistic set of goals that can be achieved to solve the problem. Yeah, I know that makes sense. Uh, easier said than done though. Um, we wanna develop a range of solutions and then we wanna pick a solution and then implement it and assess. Okay, all very common sense stuff. As you know, it's much easier to say it than to actually walk through those, but we're gonna walk through those. So here we wanna make sure that we're actually focused on the problem. And I think this is a really common, um, a really common issue. So here, Eddie wants to focus on music, but he needs to work until his music career takes off, which makes it more difficult to work on his music. <laughs> so I hope that makes sense. I'm not sure if anyone here, whether they're uh, FSP clients or homeless clients or maybe young adults at school, but um, like they wanna follow their talents. And we're in Los Angeles, there's tons of talent and people come here to, to walk to, try to make something big, which is really exciting. But oftentimes you need to work to pay bills while you facilitate that talent. Um, and that might make it a little challenging to be creative sometimes. And I, I, I've worked with lots of people who have a really hard time finding that balance. Um, but anyways, I sorry, I'm going off on a tangent there. Um, we wanna make sure that we actually define the real problem. So like for Eddie, I think there's a lot of different things that might come up and um, and I'm going to go through those. But before we do, I want to make a connection to some of these handouts. So there's uh, two, uh, two sheets in there and you don't have to go through it now. I'm going to show you a quick screenshot. But there's a tool there that's called What's the Real Problem? It helps to discern what the person's actually struggling with, as opposed to some of these outline distractors that sometimes come in our perception when we are trying to solve a problem. Um, and we'll talk more about it. And then on page 22, there's defining the problem. So again, something else we're gonna go into. So I know this is really, really tiny on your screen. Um, and you might've heard this analogy before. I used to use this all the time, typically around anger. But actually, this iceberg analogy works for the problem orientation as well. Oftentimes, when we are uh, presented with a problem, you know, there's that initial presentation, but oftentimes there's so much more underneath it. Um, and just like an actual iceberg, um, like the one that sunk the Titanic, like you only see the tip of it, that's like 10% of the actual iceberg. The rest of it is all underwater. Um, that doesn't mean it's not there. It's just that we can't see it. And if we only deal with that top part of the iceberg, um, well, we're ignoring 90% of it. Um, so it, it, acknowledging that there's going to be some exploration and us as helpers and whatever helper role we're in, 
we want to be able to try to uncover what's underneath. So these are the two tools that are in the toolkit that um, you can use with your clients. You're able to print these out, copy them, um, give them to your client, or just use it for yourself as kind of like a reference point when you work with somebody. So the visual is there as the iceberg. And then there are some questions um, on the right side. Again, I know this is super tiny, um, but it, it, they help to guide to figure out what the actual problem may be. Okay. So when we're talking about Eddie, um, which of the following do you think is the priority goal for Eddie? And I get there may not actually be a right answer here because um, Eddie's not, you know, I mean, he, I'm sure there's lots of Eddies out there, but he's not actually a real person. I kind of made it up. But like, what do you all think is is the actual priority goal for Eddie. Um, I noticed no one puts that he wants to become famous. And I, I really appreciate that um, because that's not really, does that mean that he's sober? Does that mean that he has a sense of purpose? Uh, does that mean people come, become famous for lots of bad reasons? <laughs> and so um, becoming famous in among itself isn't necessarily a realistic, uh, it, it could be a realistic goal, um, but that in isolation, doesn't mean that it's anything positive. Um, or to find a job. It sounds like Eddie actually has some really good job finding skills, but he might be struggling to find balance between work and then that musical creative endeavor that is what's really important to him. So, so F and, uh, F and E, yeah, thank you for that. So to develop a plan and, and to remain sober. Again, no necessarily right or wrong answer. I guess to be famous would be a wrong answer, but um, but just from that scenario, you could see that there's a few different directions that one can go in trying to identify what the problem actually is and then what the goal may be for this individual. Okay, so once we come up with a uh, with a goal, and a goal might change, and when you're working with somebody, they may say, you know, if you're working with Eddie, he may say that he, you know he wants to he wants to uh, remain sober and that's his main goal and then after you work with him for a bit he realizes like you know what i actually have all the uh things in place for that you know i have coping tools coping mechanisms i go to recovery groups i have a sponsor He's like, really, the issue is I, I feel like I don't have a lot of purpose in life. You know, music is my thing. That gives me purpose, but I, I can't do it. I have no money. It doesn't pay right away. And, you know, and, and maybe that's the ultimate uh, goal for him. Um, so all that to say, it can change as we go through. Now, as we identify some possible solutions, we want to come up with a ton of ideas. And so you know, you're working with Eddie and you're saying, okay, let's look at what some of those possible solutions are. This could be a really good brainstorming process. I do this with clients all the time of varying functional levels. And I encourage people, it doesn't matter how silly or stupid or unrealistic the, the, the ideas that come up with are, it's okay because sometimes those silly ideas actually lead to something that's really helpful. So when we're creating or generating a list of different solutions to try to address whatever problem is, uh, is faced, uh, we wanna be creative. We wanna look at quantity over quality in this case. Doesn't mean we're just gonna 
take those bad ideas and run with them. Look, we're gonna process through and, and look at pros and cons, but initially let's just get them all out there. And we wanna avoid placing any judgment. So even if, you know, Eddie says, well, I really want to be, you know, I, I need to, maybe a solution is for me to play the lottery every day and hope that I win. Okay, we're gonna write that down. I'm not gonna laugh at it. I'm not going to say that that's a stupid idea um, or I'm not even gonna ignore it. I'm not gonna say, oh, well, that seems kind of unlikely. Nope, we're gonna put it down. Um, we are gonna give that attention. And so variety is important and having lots of alternatives is important. So on page 23 of that handout packet that you can download, there is a generating alternative solutions uh, worksheet. Um, I don't use the, here's the worksheet. It's obviously really tiny on the screen, um, but I just use a blank piece of paper and just write all over it. <laughs> no need to use a worksheet, but let's get all of those things. So here are the possible solutions that you and Eddie come up with. Work hard at music, hoping for a success before unemployment runs out. So his idea is next three months before unemployment goes away, do work as hard as he could and hope that he makes it big within the next three months. Um, maybe use some meth because that's previously helped him to generate ideas. Um, so, hey, all right, let's put that down. Okay. Um, stop hoping for a music career and focus on a new job of waiting tables. Okay. Again, another one, as, as we talk through these, you may feel yourself having some judgment, but if this is what Eddie reports as an option, it is an option. We're going to write it down. Um, go to a, a, go to college for a degree in finance. Eddie actually has no desire to do anything with finance, um, but maybe his dad uh, went to school for finance and he's like, well, I could just do that. Um, he could do absolutely nothing um, and just see what happens. He could ask unemployment for an extension. Uh, that's probably the most unrealistic answer on here. <laughs> that's something you should not say um, to Eddie when you're working with him. Um, maybe borrow money from a sponsor. He could perform on Hollywood Boulevard for tips. Uh, he could live on the streets. That's one way to save money. He could look for a less exhausting job so he can still focus on music. And then finally, we come up with this idea of let's start a GoFundMe campaign. So all of these ideas, um, it, some of them are better than others, um, but they're ideas that were generated by the work that you and Eddie have done together through brainstorming. And this is the list. This is a great list. It could be much bigger than this, but for time's sake, we'll stick with this. Okay, so now that we have this list of all of these different options, we wanna be able to kind of make some decisions around those. So there, of course, is a worksheet. Um, it's called the Decision-Making Worksheet in the Problem Solving Instruction Manual. Um, so that's on page 24, but we're gonna do that here. Um, and there's here's what it looks like. Um, it's basically listing each of those alternative responses. Will it work? Uh, what happens if I do it? Uh, what will be the possible outcome to me and then to like society um, or my close connections? So um, that's one way to look at each option and process that through. So I'd encourage you to take a look at this worksheet. I actually do like this one. Um, and so here, uh, let's say that Eddie and I 
We've gone through that worksheet. We've processed each one of those options, whether it was silly or not. We've, we processed each one and we came up with this. Um, when I say we, more so Eddie than me. Um, so he thinks that he still has some time. He might be able to work hard at music, hoping for a success before his unemployment runs out. Great, okay, so that one he wants to keep. He did cross out using meth. He says that, yes, it actually does give him a lot of great ideas, but it's not really consistent with some other goals that he has in life. And then he spends a lot of money on meth and then he's gonna ruin his sobriety and then he's not be creative anymore. Cause yeah, okay. So he was able to come to that, we crossed it off. Um, he also wanted to keep this on here, um, maybe throwing out his music career and just focusing on a new job of waiting tables. Maybe that's his, that, that's where he sees his future. Okay, we'll keep it on the list. The other ones he crossed off, um, he still thinks that maybe borrowing money from a sponsor could be a good idea. Maybe performing on Hollywood Boulevard is an option. He could look for a less exhausting job or start a GoFundMe page. So after we did an initial processing, we were able to get rid of a few of these ideas without judgment, um, taking them all seriously, following Eddie's lead on what he thinks is going to be a good option. And here's what we are left with for possible solutions. Okay. And then we want to decide on a solution. So again, I know this is all easier said than done, um, and we'll go through more of it. But uh, here I listed out each one of those options, and I put on here the possible outcomes. Now, again, this is work that you would do in session. It's something that you guys can practice together. Um, you don't have to use a form. You could use a whiteboard if you're in the office. If you're on the street, you could use a scrap piece of paper. You don't even have to write it down. You can just talk through it. So we'll just go through a couple of these. Um, let's say he could work hard on music hoping for a success. So what's the possible outcome? Well, it's possible, but it's unlikely. Um, he feels that he doesn't have enough time to, like maybe he could write a song, um, but he doesn't think he has enough time and money to make it like a professional quality recording. Um, you know, he looks at the, let's borrow money from the sponsor. Well, he knows that this is not respecting boundaries, but he thinks he might be able to make it work and buy him another month, perhaps. Um, um, going through each one, taking them seriously, thinking about how it may result. Um, and let's go through one more. Look for a less exhausting job so he can still focus on music. Eddie feels that this might work, but waiting tables typically pays better than other jobs that he has had. So, I mean, this example of Eddie, it is a very real example. Like, I know I made it up, but like, you know, this idea of like people getting trapped in some of these jobs that are so draining, it prevents them from doing things that are purposeful. Um, but it's what pays the bills, you know, I, I, I and perhaps um, it's not as common in some of the work that you all do. I know, you know, typically you're working with individuals who may have a little bit of a lower functioning level or maybe aren't down jobs at the moment, but gosh, it is such a common dilemma. Okay, so um, actually, before we move on, we just we just went through that ideal problem solving um, model in like 30 minutes. 
I recognize that that's not realistic, that, uh, I mean, this model is realistic. Going through it that easily, that quickly is not always realistic. We know we're gonna hit a lot of bumps in the road as we try to figure out what is the real problem, as we, uh, you know, we want to work on identifying what's important to an individual, what values do they have, um, and how do their goals align with their values. I, I don't talk much about that in this training, but that's something I often incorporate into the work that I do. Um, like for someone like Eddie, music is obviously a very important value to him. Um, are there ways that he can meet that value without making it big at this moment? It's not saying that he's not going to be famous, um, but right now, like what are some of the steps to get there without expecting that he'll make it big within the next three months. Um, uh, so kind of reframing that. Um, and so as we finish out today over the next 20 minutes, and then when we start uh, following Wednesday, we're going to go through more of the tools that will hopefully guide somebody from that starting point where we started about 30 minutes ago of having this problem, um, all the way up to the end where we're on the decide on a solution. So we're gonna talk about all of the different barriers that might come up and what tools might be applicable to help somebody work through that. Um, any, any other comments or questions before we go into a final vignettes that uh, hopefully will spark some conversation and then we'll end out for the, the, for the day. Oops, going the wrong way here. Okay, cool. All right, so this is probably a little bit more of a real vignette for, for some of you, not all of you. Um, we're gonna talk about Raphael. So Raphael wants to drink with his friends in the park, but if he returns to his housing drunk again, he'll get kicked out. He hasn't seen his friends for a week because his FSP team has been lining him up with multiple appointments and he started new medications that have been making him uh, feel a little bit sleepy. However, he feels awake today. He has nothing on his agenda. He knows that his friends are out there because they always are. And he hasn't had a drink in one week. He could really use a cold or a warm beer if that's the case. Um, so if you were Raphael, how would you state the problem? And I'm gonna turn back to the vignette. Um, so there's a few different things here, but what are some ideas? Uh, putting yourself in Raphael's shoes, what's, what's the problem? So lack of structure, too much downtime without positive alternative activities that he it can engage in. So yeah, lack of structure really good. And, and also going back to the, um, to the lack of things to do, um, you know, it, it, it even, uh, for me, like I think about like, it, I, I would imagine if I was in his, in his shoes, I'd feel like I just didn't have a whole lot of purpose. Like there wasn't anything really meaningful going on in my life right now. Um, his FSP team sounds really awesome. Like they got all these appointments lined up for him and he sounds like he is right there with them. Like he's been doing it and like so many positive things. But yeah, this still feels like there's this emptiness. There's this like, like something's missing. Um, 
So what do you think are some possible goals for Raphael? And we're going to consider all of these different problems. We don't know at this point what he feels the main problem is. That's okay. Um, but just as a reminder, we have, he's feeling overwhelmed. There's a, he, he needs some sort of social connection. He has too much time. There's a lack of structure in his life. Um, he, he wants to avoid consequences. Um, doesn't have a whole lot of meaningful activity. So th those are the things that he's dealing with. What are some possible goals? Obviously we would work on a goal with him present, but since he's fictional, we'll do it on our own. Any ideas? Okay, sequences, because then he's gonna be tempted to drink. Um, or if we you know, just focus on you need structure, well, we could provide structure, but it might not be anything that's meaningful to you. You know, you, we can, you know, maybe say, oh, here, go to, we'll sign you up for, for, uh, for some classes. Well, maybe he doesn't want to do that and it doesn't feel meaningful for him. Um, so again, we'd be missing the mark, but broadening that goal out, we're attacking, like not attacking, but we're, we're addressing what's underneath that iceberg as opposed to just the tip. Uh, possible seeking out Zoom meeting in 12-step format. Yeah, uh, walking, possible low-impact exercise. Really, really great suggestions. Um, like the low-impact exercise can be a really great way to um, uh, to create a, a coping mechanism for maybe feeling overwhelmed, for maybe any other feelings uh, that might come up. So good. So like we've identified some um, really great possible uh uh, goals there. And then, you know, as we're, we, we don't necessarily have to do this today, but when we generate solutions, um, that would be where we start brainstorming, um, where we say, okay, it sounds like, Raphael, you're interested in like connecting with an activity that that's enjoyable to you. Um, let's just put everything down. Doesn't matter what it is, we're, anything that comes to mind, this is brainstorming. Something that seems silly may actually spark a new idea that's not silly and very realistic. So let's go through there and just do all, we'll, we'll go through that problem solving process of listing out alternatives, then minimizing that list to ones that seem a little bit more realistic, doing some pros and cons of each one of those and hopefully landing on a solution. And so that is actually all we have for today. Um, and just to sort of recap, we looked at problem-solving therapy, what it is, we've explored some of the evidence to support it. We uh, looked at different problem-solving orientations, whether it was a positive one or a negative one. We looked at different styles that people have of problem-solving. Is somebody really avoidant? Is somebody, do they, are they more impulsive and careless? Or are they more planful? I, I think we all sort of embrace all of those at different times, depending on what the problem is. Um, then we walked through a problem-solving process, again, a very idealistic problem-solving process, um, but we'll, we've identified a few specific tools that are available in the PDF download. And then we also went over some CBT basic concepts to help bridge that gap between CBT and PST. Um, so we will, when we pick up next Wednesday, we're gonna revisit Raphael 
And then we're going to go through four distinct problem-solving toolkits. And each toolkit that, um, that is available in that PDF um, kind of addresses a different barrier uh, or a different uh, challenge that someone may encounter when they're trying to do some of the problem-solving. Um, and I believe that is it. So I encourage you to put any um, questions or you could unmute yourself um, if you have questions or comments or anything else. Um, but I will, I'll be here for the next, you know, five, 10 minutes to answer any of those. Um, but thank you all so much for your uh, partici uh, participation today and um, looking forward to seeing you all next Wednesday for part two.